With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. There was never any law or anything that said you couldn't do research with psychedelics. It was sort of like a death sentence to your career. You know, and in fact, there was a whole lot of people's careers that like they came up, they got MDs or PhDs, and they were hoping to become psychedelic researchers. And then the rug was pulled out. I was told by a number of folks uh, early on, like, oh, my gosh, you have such a promising pedigree and trajectory. Like, why would you know, why would you do this? But, but it seemed clear, like, you know, a big part of the future was therapeutics. Like people talk about this stuff. There's this person's life before. They took a big dose of mushrooms or, or LSD, and there's this person's life after. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and today we start episode four of our series on psychedelics. In this series, we look at the way revolutionary thinkers defy societal norms in order to advance medicine, redefine culture, and occasionally recalibrate our minds. This movement began brewing in the 60s and has slowly been edging into the mainstream since, whether it's through Silicon Valley elites microdosing or government-approved psychedelic therapies. And this series highlights the people who have helped lead the way. Today, we're talking to Matthew Johnson, a psychology professor at Johns Hopkins University and associate center director for the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. This center is basically leading the country in psychedelic studies. Today, Matthew will guide us through his career and path towards psychedelic research and advocacy. And it all starts in Landover, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. As like you, you know, went into like seventh and eighth grades, when did you start to, you know, get an interest in STEM or in like research and in science? You know, if I really think about my life broadly, I had those those interests going back a long ways. I mean, I got really into building model rockets when I was, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade. But school, I really kind of, I, I didn't do well most of my years. I mean, I started out sort of like a C student. I mean, I was sort of the class clown really early on. Uh, like a lot of, it, of the environments I just didn't respond to. I just, it wasn't engaging. I did a lot of my learning outside of the classroom. It's interesting that Matthew turned to mathematics and engineering, to systems with binary or black and white answers. Matthew started to gravitate towards what is almost the engineering behind thinking. The black and white nature of those like engineering projects seems to me very foreign or far from the maybe a little bit more gray area that exists in psychology. So like as you went towards college, what drew you towards that and what aspects of that field were like, oh, well, what, this is something that I can actually maybe explore. The thing that I didn't like about engineering was the general trajectory that I was going to be like, you know, pretty much your jobs were, you know, your trajectory was going to be a defense contractor. And yeah, I didn't want to do that. Gosh, especially um, when the like the very initial before Desert Storm, there was Desert Shield. And like this is the, you know, the, the first Iraq war and sort of becoming a little more, you know, aware of 
relatively recent history at that, you know, with Vietnam and then, you know, the current world situation. It's like, okay, I don't, I don't think I want to be a, uh, you know, work for a defense contractor or something else that seemed boring. But so it was really like, I want to help people. I want to do something that's, that's relevant to helping people. That was the draw. Kind of the biggest influence was is the work of, of B.F. Skinner, really the most prominent figure in behavioral psychology. Um, the the understanding of essentially what's called operant conditioning, how relationships with the environment shape the behavior of people and other animals, um, very systematically how. Uh, rewards or reinforcers and punishers, how these different consequences in the environment have just such this powerful effect on behavior and just changing certain uh, the schedules of those relationships. So if you're in a relationship with something where there's sort of a every once in a while a reward, um, but it's unpredictable, like sort of a slot machine. You know, it's not just slot machines, but other things like that environment. This could be in terms of relationships, in terms of whether or not you're getting feedback from someone you like, or that's a highly reinforcing. That's more reinforcing than, say, getting a reward every time. And these are extremely lawful, like patterns of behavior that you'll see. Like it doesn't matter whether it's a pigeon or a rat or a person. And I imagine like the engineering part of your brain that wanted that binary was like, this actually makes sense. Like this is maybe a little bit more structured than psychology generally gets a rap for. Right. It's more of a challenge, you know, because there are these lawful behaviors, but there's a whole lot of like mess too, which ultimately makes it fun and, and interesting and, and, and more to learn in terms of a science. And then on the biological side, so a very close relative to that is sort of the what you could call neuroscience or the the, the biological basis of behavior, a, a totally different type of analysis. But like behavioral analysis, it has that engineering like aspect. It's more of a hard science, so to speak. And so, you know, understanding drugs is a really cool interface between both of those. So Matthew is breaking down these abstract aspects of psychology and making them more binary through behavioral analysis. What Bia Skinner and Matthew are interested in is how consequence changes future behavior. It's a practice that's used in teaching tools and parenting techniques and addiction treatment. It's almost this perfect bridge between the abstract and concrete thinking Matthew is stuck between. But before he progressed in this field, he got a little sidetracked. I want to talk about this hiatus that you take from school uh, during this midlife crisis period, right? Because you took um, a few years off, right? Right, right. I think I was too early, too early to go to college. I just, I didn't know, I, you know, I just wasn't into it. Why did you take those years off and what did you actually do in that time? Well, uh, yeah, I became disillusioned is probably the the best way to say it, you know, in terms of uh, not really feeling compelled to be in school and uh, not wanting to go along that the trajectory I was on of pursuing an engineering degree, you know, again, given, you know, where that would probably like take me. So it's basically a time to figure it out. I had several jobs. I actually worked for a while as a as a custodian in a in a high school, which was interesting because I wasn't a whole lot older than the than the students that were there. And I, like I remember one time I was like at that point was uh, that time of day was like to wipe down all the rails, you know, throughout the school, like the handrails. And uh, 
a teacher kind of scowled at me. He's like, where are you supposed to be? And I was like, I'm supposed to be here wiping off these, like, these rails. How did it feel like to do that? You're very smart. So like, did it feel like, I don't know, you were stagnant at this point when you were washing these rails and getting a sass from the teachers? I might have felt that at some point, but that wasn't a major theme for me. I was more of like, uh, I look back on it now and I, it's like I was figuring a lot of things out. And I, sometimes I, I talk to people in academia and it's like they had, I don't know, their first job was like the laboratory assistant in the, the research lab they were in. And, you know, and then they go to graduate. It's like they've never had a real job. I don't know. All of these things are just really valuable to me. And uh, yeah, the, sort of the, the, the people that you meet, the lessons that you learn. Dwelling on the people that you meet really quick, because this was the time that uh, you started meeting some interesting people that told you about like the role psychedelics played in culture. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, I was like 19. Yeah. You start like learning about the drugs that are around and the people that are using them and the stories. In terms of my own, like, you know, reading of, of history, of course, this is back before the internet going out to libraries, like finding out from your local library that, oh, this certain, you know, book on drugs is like at a library a half hour away. You find that in the card catalog, you know, on a Saturday and you like, you know, spend a half day reading that and, and reading the, the history. I remember coming upon, uh, well, certainly Huxley, um, the doors of perception. I remember coming upon um, Be Here Now and The Only Dance There Is and sort of that, that was sort of a, a start of a introduction to the history of the old, the work at Harvard by Leary and Alpert and everything that, that came with that. And this of course is a time when I was, you know, my musical interests and tastes were, you know, evolving and I was catching up to sort of the music of previous. So, you know, listening to Pink Floyd and the Beatles and that type of thing for the first time and really like, you know, starting to you know, understand that intersection between drugs and and that like, you know, oh, yeah, there was the Beatles before <laughs> LSD and here's the Beatles after LSD. And like, yeah, there is a pre post difference, you know. In a world hungry with questions about acid, Matthew found his answers in the clear cultural changes psychedelics were involved in. The Beatles are a perfect example. In 1965, George Harrison and John Lennon were introduced to psychedelics when a dentist, John Ripley, slipped LSD sugar cubes into their coffee after a dinner party. The two described it as a horror movie, but Harrison said it felt like he gained years of experience in 12 hours. When we took the notorious wonder drug LSD, uh, we didn't know we were having it. When acid came round, we'd heard that you're never the same. It alters your life and you never think the same again. And I think John was rather excited by that prospect. I was rather frightened by that prospect. Just what I need. You know, he says, you have some funny little thing where I can never get back home again. You know, oh, geez, you know. It all resulted in their album, Revolver. And it's now dubbed as their psychedelic album. And it was unlike anything they had made before. It was experimental and tackled different music styles, sounds, and content. It's a perfect example of how psychedelics broke the previous cultural mold. This blend of culture and art was prolific and something Matthew had to chase to really get to the root of these big ethereal questions. Why was this world so interesting? Gosh, I mean, 
those sort of big metaphysical questions that like tend to come up when, uh, you know, when psychedelics are around, I was always sort of fat. I mean, more than the average kid, I, I think I remember just being like, I think like five years old and, and, and thinking this is weird. Like, why do I exist? Like, that's weird. Like, <laughs> why is there something and not, you know, like, and why am I me and not another person? You know, these sort of like, you know, big questions. And then like, what is the mind? What is like, why, why is there subjective experience? Why is, you know, call it what you consciousness people who you know, we're doing psychedelics seem to have very interesting things to say. People came out sometimes with observations that coincided with some of these mystical traditions. Did you start to view it through a spiritual lens? Because I feel like it's very easy to look at some of these experiences and not having had them and say like, this, that's just drugs. Did you feel like you were flipping over into that like spiritual realm or was that, was it more, how, how do you like look at the brain under a microscope and like understand it more? I think fortunately I've, I've, I've kind of avoided that dichotomy. I, I mean, the, spirituality is such a loaded term because it can mean so many things. I don't think I ever had a, this bias against drugs in the way that like, I, I think I always had a healthy bias. Like, I always realized that, like, you name it, like, people can go overboard and, like, haven't e- used drugs in an unhealthy way. But, you know, it, I don't think I was ever of the mindset when I, you know, that, oh, gosh, someone's used psychedelics once and they're just, they fried their mind. And I mean, it seemed obvious to me that, like, the brain is this, the most complex machine in the universe that we know of. And, you know, hey, these are like things that are chemicals that you drop into it. And, you know, the way it works is through chemical transmission and you drop these certain chemicals into it and you have these profound changes in people. I mean, no matter what it is, like cocaine, um, like how people can feel that happy and, and that stimulated or just you know caffeine you know like i don't know young folks figuring out like yeah you drink five cups of coffee that's a serious effect on the you know on your state of awareness and and then psychedelics obviously are the most interesting i think these questions matthew is tackling bring up a really interesting world within psychedelic use it seems like there's some connection between acid and metaphysical thinking Everyone's stories about psychedelics almost feel like these religious experiences, or at least they recount these chemical changes with the same passion as people who've had a spiritual awakening. The connection between psychedelics and religion is actually very strong. In Hinduism, the Vedas refer to a hallucinogenic drink called Soma. The Odyssey talks about the drug of forgetfulness, The Aztec artifacts show a strong connection between psilocybin mushrooms and religious rituals. It's such a rich history that psychedelics used for religious purposes have their own name, ethiogens. A study done with Christian college students showed that hallucinogens often cause an ethiogenic psychedelic experience. I think it's an interesting connection that Matthew really lays out as chemical. It's crazy to think how these concrete changes in our brain can cause such big alterations to our abstract thinking. This is pretty much what Matthew is interested in. 
beyond religion and beyond drugs. He's powered by understanding what makes people tick. You had left college for a while. What makes you want to come back and study this more in depth? Well, I did feel that I I wasn't like I had something in my future that wasn't I wasn't getting to where I was at. You know, I felt like the time was right. You know, um, and, and I did determine that, like, I want to go into something like psychology. I am. I'm interested in the mind. I'm interested in what makes people work. It was that time, like, we only had two full time psychology professors. So I was went into psychology and I didn't even again, I didn't know what really psychology was. And there were aspects like, you know, behavioral psychology. And, and neuroscience. So I made a commitment that I was going to get A's throughout all of college. And I remember telling my, what do you call it, advisor, but he didn't know me much at the time. It was like, man, you're looking at your record. That's not a really a realistic goal. You know, are you sure? And I was like, I'm going to do it. Like, no, seriously. And ultimately he was right because in my senior year, I took a course, which I should have opted into a pass, a pass fail because it was a totally, it was a, elective that I didn't need to get graded. I got a B plus in ceramics <laughs> by one of the coolest professors I've ever had. He was like, yeah, this crazy art professor, but I got that B plus, but I tell you what, I so value the, the, the GPA of 3.97 rather than a 4.0 because a 4.0 is so boring and the 3.97 is ultimately followed like, what the hell did you get the B in? And I get to tell him about that that really cool art class. <laughs> Ceramics aside, Matthew was grinding through college with flying colors. After three whole years of exploring different jobs and discovering the topics that captivated his curiosity, Matthew knew exactly why he was there and the value it offered. With this kind of certainty, he'd drive 2,544.89 miles across the country through a demanding workload and right up to his graduation stage with summa cum laude ringing over the speakers. Okay, but he didn't do this for the degree. Getting a degree because it's what society praises does not nearly have the same amount of gas behind it as purpose and engagement. Matthew was not looking for approval or status by earning a degree. He was looking to become excellent at what he wanted to do for the world. This excellence would do a whole lot down the line. Early on, you got, like, you started investigating the effects of, like, caffeine withdrawal. You also became really interested in, like, cocaine research. Well, I was doing just really good, you know, academically because I was obsessed. I would like memorize the chapters, <laughs> their content and, and just like totally regurgitate them. So I just sort of floated to the top. It was a small school. It was great. And so I got pulled into, you know, hey, do you want to be a research assistant in the laboratory? And I was fortunate that Chip Ettinger, one of the two professors uh, uh, in the psychology department, was doing, there was a, a small rat lab and he was doing some work on cocaine, a cocaine immunization. So I got into this research with him with rats, which required training rats to essentially tell you whether they were on cocaine or not. It's just a technique called drug discrimination, which is like, that's crazy. Like, right? You're training a rat to tell you whether it's high on coke or not. On the days when it's you've given it a cocaine injection in the belly, like 10 minutes later, you set it up so that like the right lever in the cage is the one, if you press it, that it gives them food pellets. 
and you do that a bunch and like really reliably the rat will tell you by which lever they're pressing yes i'm on cocaine or not what were you feeling as you were discovering how the study was being done and like how it actually worked to study the mind on on different substances like was was there something that turned on where it's like oh like i want to do this even more and i want to do this maybe with this specific drug you know, I was delving in deeply to understanding all of these drugs and, and caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, you know, cocaine, methamphetamine. There's a lot of methamphetamine around, by the way, and and then psych- psychedelics. And so um, all of these are just like these interesting probes uh, that affect the mind and behavior. I like to say, I mean, that was an early initiation into behavioral pharmacology where the effects of drugs and the mind or drugs and behavior. And I, people like Steve Jobs are saying that LSD was one of the most important things they've ever done. Carrie Mullis, who invented PCR, which, you know, probably the biggest revolution outside of the structure of DNA and ever in biology, said he wouldn't have been able to do that had he not had experience with psychedelics and being able to ride along that molecule in his mind, see the DNA molecule unzipper like before him. We talked about the arts, you know, it's like, you know, the the Beatles before and after LSD and, and all of the the artists that, that you know, claimed that these powers, these life-changing powers of LSD, and then the stories of things like addiction recoveries. So anyway, as I was developing, you know, I had it in these areas, in this general sort of like drug research, it was sort of psychedelics were always on my mind. Although because of the strict limitations of the FDA and DA, they would have to stay in his mind and out of the lab. It would be a whole 18 years before psychedelic research finally received approval for clinical trialing, making it pretty unusual that psychedelics were even on Matthew's radar at the time. But I guess that's how you know behavioral psychology was calling. He saw the significance of psychedelics without anyone having to show him. And its significance is revolutionary. They've recently discovered that when an individual is under the influence of psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, or mushrooms, the network of brain activity related to our sense of self, called the default mode network, takes a break. Think about the unmatched opportunity this presents for behavior disruption. The part of our brain that has ingrained all of the narratives and habits we have patterned into our identity dissipates. Our perspective becomes a blank canvas, giving us the extraordinary opportunity to repaint the way we see the world. Sooner or later, the field of behavioral psychology would have to acknowledge the potential of this power. And when they finally did open the doors of psychedelic research, Matthew would be the first in line. The research had all stopped, you know, because of the fiasco in the in the early 70s, late 60s and the overreaction to it. You know, but that's a part of it. I mean, Tim Leary had so many positives and he was a wild man always, long before he took psychedelics. Nonetheless, it's like he was part of the formula that convinced folks to say, hey, look, even these scientists, we can't trust them. There's so much momentum going against being able to study something like this. Like, how how do you think about doing that? Right. It was all snuffed out for decades. Yeah. My vision was that if I had established myself in stuff that other stuff that I was truly interested in, that I would be able to pick up on this in 20, you know, 30, who knows, 40 years. And so in between undergraduate and, and 
my psychedelic research and my postdoc, I had graduate school, and there I pursued stuff I was extremely interested in. Behavioral economics, applying economic principles to understand addiction, to understand drug consumption across a wide variety of substances from everything from, you know, tobacco to cocaine to cannabis to, to understand both the, the nature of, of addiction, but also people's decisions to use drugs. You know, I was like 80, 90 percent like nudge towards going there. But then it was like obviously 150 percent. You know, it was like, this is what I want to do. This was 150 percent what Matthew wanted to do all along. And he wasn't alone. Researchers like Matthew had been burning for a chance like this since the Nixon presidency. Much of the publicity psychedelics received at that time came from figures like Tim Leary and Ken Kesey. Leary had been a Harvard psychology professor who did a series of experiments administering LSD to students. Although his initiatives were revolutionary, he was reportedly informal in his scientific approach, sometimes taking tabs alongside his subjects. Kinsey, a famous writer at the time, outrightly promoted recreational use of psychedelics. He and a group called the Merry Pranksters documented their trips on LSD as they rode across the U.S. in an eccentric school bus. While the counterculture youth praised figures like this, the U.S. government practically outlawed them. The police targeted Kinsey and charged him with marijuana possession, and President Nixon named Leary the most dangerous man in America. Condemning and outcasting individuals with an interest in psychedelics left years of lingering stigma in psychedelic research. Matthew, however, was determined to improve the field of behavioral psychology, and cultural taboo wouldn't stop him. And what was the psilocybin project? And how did that get off the ground if there's like like what we talked about, like if there's all this momentum against that? Like how, how was that even able to, to arise? Well, there was never any law or anything that said you couldn't do research with psychedelics. There were just like really big paperwork barriers. The most important thing was there was just professional marginalization. It was sort of like a death sentence to your career. That's what kept most people... You know, and in fact, there was a whole lot of people's careers that like they came up, they got, you know, MDs or PhDs in the early mid 70s, and they were hoping to become psychedelic researchers. And then the rug was pulled out. You know, uh, the early group at Hopkins was able to, you know, jump through those hoops and get the approvals. And I was told by a number of folks uh, early on, like, oh, my gosh, you have such a promising like pedigree and trajectory. Like, why would you do this? Good luck ever get funding in that. That just sounds crazy. It seemed clear, like, big part of the future was therapeutics. Like, there's this person's life before they took a big dose of mushrooms or, or LSD, and there's this person's life after. And there's plenty of people with stories where it's, like, in this category of these major life changes. Not just, like, the, oh, the first cigarette they smoked or the first time they, they tried a bump of cocaine or something. Like, it's, like, life-changing for some people. Can you talk about one of those experiences from one of those, like, early studies that made you realize, like, oh, this, ha this has... Um, I mean, I know, I know you always believe that, that it had legitimacy, but I guess like proved it in a formal setting that this was legitimate. I, I think of one participant that I worked with as a guide. So guide is sort of the term for the person actually in the room with them all day, you know, um, helping them through the experience when they need it. And a, a guy whose son had committed suicide some, you know, a few years ago and just like Man, if you have unresolved, you know, trauma, unresolved psychological material, it's just like the floodgates open up. And especially when you're in a safe environment with people that you trust, it's like, boom. 
and the resolution and like have you know, people tell you like that, that it was like years of therapy that they just can't imagine like how this happened. This sort of um, therapeutic breakthrough happens. It's like a goal of the high dose of psilocybin to like have some sort of ego death. Ego death is one way to put it that I mean, that's one way to say sort of a a sense of unity. So that's one of the telltale marks of a very high dose session. And we do find that things like having a sense of unity, this forms a larger construct called mystical experience where it's you have a timelessness and a spacelessness sense to it, a sense of unity, like feeling one with all things and just dissolving of the individual self and a positive mood and ineffability. These are predictive of long-term positive benefit, whether it's a a regular person who has a more open personality long-term or whether it's a smoker who's more likely to be biologically verified as having quit smoking, you know, six months or a year later, or whether it's a cancer patient who is, has less anxiety or, and depression later on having these sort of like mystical experience, which includes that sort of sense of unity is related to that. You know, it increases the odds of that, of that type of long-term benefit. This whole method of, of people wearing eye shades, listening to music, laying on a couch, not doing anything per se, but just absorbing the experience in a safe environment where they trust the people. That's the formula that's called psychedelic therapy. You're going to be so far out there, like talking should be the last thing on your mind. And when you do talk, unless you're having trouble, then let us know if you're feeling anxiety. That way we can reassure you. But other than that, just don't waste your time talking to us. Like you're the astronaut. Like you're you're going out there. Like you, you, you need to be looking at the stars, not using all of your time talking to, to mission control. On a high dose of a drug like psilocybin, you can get really far out there, like as far away from objective reality as an astronaut is from Earth. Psilocybin also comes in the form of shrooms, and it takes hold of your prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that is responsible for your perception. Within 30 or so minutes of consuming a high dose, all of your senses become saturated in an alternate reality. Our senses are what we rely on to give us the cold, hard truth. When we can't trust our emotions and biases, we look to the physical, and yet psychedelics reveal that even this can dissipate. All certainty gets disrupted, which, yes, sounds a little scary, but resigning certainty opens up the gateways to possibility. The possibility to move beyond embedded trauma or the clinical trappings of addiction. It opens up the space to pave a new path of healing and peace. Despite these incredible benefits, under the wrong circumstances, the fear of this unfamiliar reality can cause intense psychological trauma. Matthew would use his unique gift for compassion to comfort people as they said goodbye to their every source of comfort. And something that you published was the, the psychedelic safety guidelines um, like a few years later. So I'm wondering, like, what are what are the things that that you say during those sessions where maybe someone is having a difficult experience? Um, how do you reassure that person? Just with a genuineness, letting the person know that you are with them, looking them in the eye, holding their hand. Don't talk them out of any. If they're crying, don't subtly encourage them to stop crying. It's like, this is exactly what you should be doing. Encouraging to fully immerse into the experience and let them know it's really that safe environment. And this is powerful because I've even worked with people at Burning Man. This I did this during my first year at Hopkins. I volunteered to help sort of the bad trip tent. 
This is even when you don't have the hours of preparation and the screening and everything. It can even work there, even though it's a you know more difficult because you don't have that history. But just you look them in the eye, and I find especially in that setting, and actually in the lab too, just getting physically low, like sitting on the ground with them, or where if they're on a like a little couch or we had like little cots, you know, like sitting down on the ground, looking them in the eye and letting them know, like you know, I'm just you know, yeah, this is a thing. We volunteer to help people that are having a tough time. It's just a genuineness and like, I'm not going to leave you and you're in a safe place. I'm curious in those studies, like how many people back out of the experience? Is it such a high dose that, you know, you, you can't, uh, I guess like hold on, um, or like, have you seen people back out of the experience and like, what is that like for them? So yeah, that's the idea. It's a high enough dose. Most people can't uh, can't hold on and you don't want them to. You want it to be an overwhelming dose. And some people like try to, but you're not going to get much out of it. You, you know, in terms of rigidly holding on to your conception of reality, things start to happen sometimes so rapidly and the inclination is like, no, no, I didn't know it was going to be like this. I did not know. Stop this. A lot of times people have a hard time putting that into you know words, but it's like this sense of like, I think of it as the ultimate metaphysical rug is pulled out from underneath them, at least in other intense and sometimes even traumatic situations. At least you know who you are. You're going through this experience here. It's like, whoa, what is it like to be, what is it being a human? What is this experience? Like I, they did not know it was possible to be that far outside of normal human experience. This is not like being altered in any way, like anyone with just an experience of being drunk or even, you know, depending, like sometimes people get a taste with cannabis, but even there, like this can be so much further in terms of complete separation from consensus reality. And so sometimes that's where a lot of the struggle happens, where people are trying to hang on and and you just encourage them to say, like, let go, you know, trust, let go and be open. And, and it does take courage. I mean, it can be filled. Absolutely. And often is filled with love and empathy. I mean, that's some of the best stuff that comes out of it. But the act itself, it's the most courageous you are choosing as a conscious personality and self to completely surrender everything that you know, let yourself uh, dissolve into this. Dissolving everything you know is undoubtedly the most courageous thing a person can do. Seriously, like familiarity is our most fundamental tool for survival. The only reason we are able to feed ourselves, protect ourselves, you know, and stop ourselves from dying every day is because we are familiar with reality. When we know what to expect from our environment, we can respond in a way that will ensure our safety. Predictability is our greatest pacifier. With that in mind, it's pretty beautiful that human connection can transcend barriers of psychedelic reality and ground us in a sense of knowing. Studies show us that just the touch of a hand can alleviate cardiovascular stress and also trigger releases of oxytocin, inducing a sense of calm. No matter how disoriented we feel, the one thing we can recognize with familiarity is our connection to another human being. Matthew's empathy would become a place of safety as his subjects ventured into the unknown. How do you like prep people to develop that courage? Or is it something that you can even do or curate? It's not perfect, you know, so it's not always successful because it's ultimately that person's choice to let go. But nonetheless, like the environment helps, like the preparation helps. 
letting them know that they're safe. Because ultimately, a lot of times people say, no matter how hard you tried, you could have never told me how intense that was going to be. The thing you can do is really build this environment. We get very little paranoia. And I think that's a success because that's one thing you really don't want to do. Because they, if they're paranoid of the of their guides, that's like your only tether. If that's not there, then you're really in trouble because that no matter how bad it gets, if you trust your guides, that these are human beings that like truly care for you and they're not going anywhere. They're there for you. Everything else is put into con like that's the container, so to speak, that can hold everything else. And so I think that relationship is the most important thing. And you, you could feel like you're dying and you could feel like you're going crazy and you will never come back. Like you could feel like that and you let them know. In preparation that like, yep, everyone's always come back, you know, like here are the risks that happen in the non-research world. You know, sometimes you don't ever stay, but yeah, it's rare, but sometimes people do get an accident when they panic and do something when they're in an unsafe environment around people they don't trust. And it's like, that's not the case here. We're with you the whole time. You're in this environment with us where you're, we're not, we're not going to let you do anything that, that might accidentally, you know, hurt you or someone else, you know. And so you go over all of these things and you're there with them. So the person is just fully informed. I mean, I remember actually not psilocybin, but we did the first human controlled blinded experiments with Salvinor and A. I remember one, our first participant, actually, this oh, awesome guy, he said afterwards, he went so far out. He says, man, this was like, I couldn't even tell you what context I knew you, like that we were in a study or whatever. I knew that a buddy was there that I trusted. Everything was okay because he opened his eyes and I was there like over him, you know, holding his hand and saying, Dude, you know, it's going to be okay. You know, you're perfectly fine. Whatever I said. And he's like, that's all I needed. So it's like, to me, that's like a, the best example of like what you're shooting for. To have that relationship where it's like, Dude, you could be crying about your mother. That's what's happening. That's what you're supposed to be doing. I think that means this is working, that you are fully embracing this experience. Let go. You're, I mean, one of the beautiful things that Tim Larry said was that the goal is to lose your mind. Like, you know, that's a metaphor, but like it is, it's, that means something. This is not supposed to be normal. You know, all of the good stuff that we think can come out of this is going to come from not being normal. You're going to be normal again. But for right now, you're in a safe environment where you can judiciously choose to let go into the unknown, into a mystery with courage, and then, you know, come back to consensus reality. I'm not sure I've ever heard such an abstract idea put into words better than this. To judiciously choose to let go into the unknown mystery with courage and then come back to consensus reality. This gets to the heart of letting go, of embracing a state of mind that's outside the bounds of normal and allowing the altered state to run its course. This tension between the desire for normality, what admits total abnormality, sits at the forefront of Matthew's mind. What will ensure someone feels safe while experiencing something that defies familiarity? Matthew, stemming from the work of B.F. Skinner, would say environment. If the mind on psychedelics is anything but constant, perhaps a constant in the environment, a familiar face, warm lighting, calm music, can serve as a comfort to grasp onto. This sort of ego-breaking therapy, however, doesn't stop with psilocybin. I know you've also done some MDMA studies. Uh, what I've heard is just that MDMA is a lot more damaging to the brain than other psychedelics. 
like psilocybin and acid, where those can be used maybe with more frequency and have less neurotoxicity. Yeah. So this is a nuanced conversation. Like, so there is like at a certain dose and a certain frequency, and we know this really well from the animal work, there is long-term serotonin damage. People that have taken hundreds of times, you do see long-term changes in, in, in serotonin. It seems clear to me that doing enough MDMA, even in people, like hundred, like using every weekend for months and months and months, and for you, like you're probably doing some damage. I do think by every measure we've taken, and it's just there is no question in my mind that the work that Maps is doing with PTSD and the other therapeutic work with MDMA, this is not a concern. And if there is some theoretical concern. Like my word, this is so squarely within the realm of like of psychiatric drugs. We know a whole lot of them, a whole lot of the antipsychotics we know cause dopamine, you know, dopaminergic damage when you take them long enough. The whole idea of like even if there's some small theoretical you know damage that you can't even it's not even big enough to measure in a single session. It's like, oh yeah, but the person's life was held because of PTSD and now they've embraced life and you see a dramatic reduction. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but there's some theoretical possibility that you did something. If you did it a hundred more times, you might see some damage. Relatively speaking, brain toxicity is more of a concern with MDMA, but I'm not concerned at all at the clinical studies that are happening that that's a concern there. There's clearly so much to weigh when navigating some of these drugs. Yeah, it's probably not the best idea to be straining your brain with ecstasy every time you're out at a party, but for people diagnosed with PTSD in a regulated environment, MDMA can be life-altering. In all of this, Matthew draws a distinct line between the controlled and the recreational, and I think that's a common thread for a lot of people we've talked to in this series. Psychedelics have been placed under this broad umbrella of party drugs, while researchers like Matthew see them as groundbreaking tools for change. And this is something that's been going on for decades. Dr. Leo Zeff, who Matthew mentions, was forced to take his work underground in order to avoid legal pushback in the 60s. But Zeff introduced MDMA to thousands of therapists, sending ripples across the world of psychotherapy. Now, five decades later, we may only be a couple years away from seeing MDMA approved by the Food and Drug Administration for therapeutic use. This is real change, and it does not go unnoticed. Like, it's weird. It seems like the rest of the world caught on like around two years ago. (laughs) And uh, part of it was the data that just kept coming out. Um, So early on, before our cancer work, there was the cancer work that Charlie Grobe did at UCLA. And then around the same time uh, as our cancer work, there was other cancer work that our colleagues at NYU up in New York um, conducted. And... uh, currently um, working with cocaine addiction, our colleague Peter Hendricks down at University of Alabama, Birmingham. So, I mean, so these are some pretty heavy hitters. I can't even tell you all of the centers that have started and and the new research groups, but traditionally it was like we were the biggest player in the U.S. for psilocybin. And then, of course, it was MAPS with PTSD. Eventually, folks you know, started jumping into things, you know, including like the, you know, like Tim Ferriss and his colleagues that, that forked up the, you know, donation. What was the, the, um, story behind his involvement? Yeah. He reached out years ago with, you know, wanting to, um, do some crowdfunding surrounding it. And, and he's been open about, um, his history of, and, 
uh, in dealing with mental health and um, his personal belief that these substances are so powerful. And from Tim's perspective, from the business world, I mean, he really looks at it through those eyes of, of you know being involved with these different early startups that have been really successful. He views this as a, like another thing, like this is like another Uber. Yeah, here's this new thing that not a lot of people are paying attention to. And maybe some people think are, is goofy, but it's like, oh, my God, they're on to something. And like in a few years, this is going to be big. So like being an early adopter and like more so than an early investor. And it's really good for me looking at these areas of like, oh, my God, here's this like. You know, the, you know, this research that's showing these large effects and treating these really intractable disorders like end, end of life anxiety and like addiction and depression. And yet the government's not funding that research. You know, it's like the FDA is approving the studies because it's done safely. But the NIH, the funding side, the research funding side of the government's basically ignored it to date. What an opportunity you know, so you can come in with a relatively small number of funds and really make a difference. And so like in our group, it's meant like we can actually more fully delve into psychedelic research and not worry about risking not having jobs in a few years, you know, especially for the more junior faculty members. Funding for psychedelic research has basically been ignored. But why? So let's do some digging. Between 2015 and 2018, 13.2% of American adults reported using antidepressants. That's just under 43 million people. Antidepressants treat a wide range of mental health conditions, including anxiety, OCD, PTSD, and eating disorders. Many of these same disorders that psilocybin and MDMA therapy are aimed toward. And while many people's lives absolutely do depend on prescription drugs, we're also living in a society that has only permitted one path for treatment and completely shut off access to another. So I guess I wonder, why is that? I can't help but feeling like what Matthew and others like him are trying to do is unarguably good. It's like saying, hey, I want to help you through this. I want you to be able to dig deep and process the stuff that's causing you pain so that you can truly have a chance to live life uninhibited. And it seems to me that this approach is exactly why psychedelic research is starting to gain support in a way it never has before. What are you thinking the future of psychedelics and psychedelics research looks like in the next few years? Oh, gosh, I, th I think we're in the next few years, we're going to see the first approvals of uh, probably first MDMA and then uh, psilocybin for depression. Um, and, and then it really is that's just the beginning. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, these are these seem like they're powerful behavior change agents. And so there's a whole lot where basically people are stuck and they're in need of behavior change. And so I think there's going to be a whole lot of testing. All of the addictions, they need to be tested. I mean, we're doing work now with anorexia. We're about to start um, work with, with PTSD soon um, and opioid addiction. So it's like this exploration of other disorders, but also then other compounds are going to come. I mean, we've seen all these success with largely like two, you know, with two compounds. And meanwhile, we have hundreds of compounds that either Sasha Shulgin or, or Dave Nichols and others have cooked up over the preceding decades. When you start to multiply like the hundreds of potential compounds, all of which have a different flavor in terms of receptor profile and duration of effect. And then you have these at least dozens of disorders, maybe more, 
that need to be tested, you do that math, and, and then you multiply that by different ways of using them when we combine them. There's a whole other, like, we need, you know, combining with different therapies, like, outside of the drug experience, so um, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, different types of, you know, motivational interviewing, um, I mean, got you know, psychoanalytic therapy. All of these things are like testable in terms of like what what works best with this, and then maybe individually new therapies that are tailored just for psychedelics. So that's another thing in the multiplicative equation. So you add that in, and you're probably into the millions of combinations of things that need to be tested. It's like you know, a kid in a candy shop of things to to explore, and not just therapeutics, like just understanding of like. The sense of self from the basic research and understanding like the most fundamental questions in neuroscience and psychology. Um, and that's one of the biggest ones, the sense of self, like, um, gosh, that's perhaps even more important than the therapeutics. Matthew's story feels a bit different from those we typically tell on this podcast. It's a story about him, sure, but it's also a story inextricably linked to his research, something that's obvious as the conversation threads through the technicalities of the field. His excitement for and commitment to the future of psychedelic therapy is contagious and inspiring, but his path to get there was anything but conventional. It took years of dissecting his curiosities and exploring different interests from loading lumber to training rats to reach psychedelic therapy, but he did. It's a fledgling field, and Matthew, along with many other people we've heard from in this series, see the makings of a therapeutic revolution somewhere along the horizon. Earlier, Matthew talked about holding on, and how holding on during a psychedelic trip defies the potential for the experience, the potential to defy normality. I think the same principle applies for the pursuit of change. If you let go of the norms of society, you find comfort within the discomfort then you may find your mind's boundaries breaking down, equipping you to see opportunity where others look past. So when it really comes down to it, perhaps losing your mind may not be such a bad thing after all. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Lett, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening. 
and see you next week.